0: You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, authors, and curators to tell their stories of the American Revolution. Walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we're going to be reviewing a story out of Charleston just after the war involving William Thompson, a tavern keeper. And former captain of the Continental Line. And then we're going to review some petitions from former soldiers or participants of the Revolutionary War. Kind of get an idea of the everyday man and their participation in the Revolution. The book, Charleston Sons of Liberty, a study of the artisans 1763 to 1789 by Richard Walsh, we find some interesting insights into that time in South Carolina. The political machinations of the artisans and mechanics helped propel Christopher Gadsden into the forefront of political life in the holy city of the south. Gadsden was the creator of the Gadsden flag that sports the coiled snake on a yellow background with the words don't tread on me. He was brash and disdainful of the British conduct of the Cherokee War the arguments over increased taxation, imperial rule, and constitutional rights of Englishmen in 1765 made him a champion of the second-tier citizenship of the mechanics and artisans in Charleston. These artisans and merchants always seemed to be just on the outside looking in as the government was made up of people who bought their influence in the various parishes. They were constantly striving for a strong foothold in commerce but oftentimes contended with competition from the elite planter society who rented out or turned a blind eye to their slaves performing similar trades at cut rate prices. A natural reaction for a barrel maker or carpenter feeding a family who tries to sell his barrel or table at a reasonable price was that he was upset. It really is an interesting read and if you get a copy of the 1959 book by Richard Walsh you will not be disappointed. I found an interesting tidbit of political drama within the pages and actually confirmed it through the legislative record of the time. But at the end of the Revolutionary War in 1784, feelings for the Tories still ebbed with fury. And the state had just come through a civil war as compared to other states in the new country. A club called the Anti-Britannic League sought to enforce the expulsion of the former Friends of the Empire through violence and intimidation. On the other hand, a significant part of the fledgling government wished to introduce Or reintroduce these former enemies into the good graces of the state. The civil war between neighbors that played out during the war continued as old grudges were reintroduced to the new government. Land and property confiscations were at risk during these times, and the reality of the tension belies our romantic notions of the founding of the new nation. A tavern keeper named Captain William Thompson was given a verbal message through a slave girl of Governor John Rutledge. She relayed that Rutledge was not going to be able to attend a Sons of St. Patrick party on March 17th. Now, as a sideline, she evidently was a very beautiful young lady, and rumor had it that uh, John Rutledge was more than just acquainted with her, if you know what I mean. Rutledge's excuse was a sickness of some sort. Rutledge heard that Thompson had not delivered his regrets to the Irish League and then sent a communication through possibly the same slave girl, requesting a reason as to why. Well, Thompson became offended by the haughtiness by which he felt he was treated, and he went to the Rutledge House, where he then exchanged some heated words, and then later accused Rutledge of acting like a haughty lordling over a wretched vassal. Well, this resulted in Thompson being arrested for offending a member of the legislature. He had to put up a bond to be released and await trial. Apologies by both parties were refused, and an investigation yielded a statement by the legislature. They said Thompson's words were a gross insult to an honorable member of this House. They were a flagrant violation and breach of the privileges thereof. Well, Thompson would assert that whereas the former Tories were given care and protection by the government, he, a former Continental officer in good standing, was not even afforded counsel. He pushed for a trial and stated that no longer was the case between he and his equal citizen, Rutledge, but now against a tyrannical legislature. If allowed to continue, the legislature would banish, at will, anyone that dared to criticize them. It was a terrible precedent for so young a government. The case, as documented in the journal article, Legislative Privilege in Post-Revolutionary South Carolina by Michael Stevens in January of 1989, further magnified a societal norm that carried over from before the war, and that being that the merchants always found themselves up against the aristocrats. The heated arguments spilled into the streets and riots ensued and several duels were threatened. This case, among others, was used to transform the new governments to give better representation to a cross-section of the citizenry. I enjoy reading about these larger political questions and incidents. I find similarities between those and some of the arguments of today that play out on the news channels and and partisan flair. However, what I find especially intriguing for this episode are some of the war petitions that documented the unknown or lesser-known participants of the war, the everyday soldiers. For this episode, I've picked out a few and have tried to give a cross-section of some of the reports. Some of them fought, uh, some of them procured supplies. Uh, Some of them were Wagners or drummers, but they come from a cross section of society in that time. I think, like the Bible, these oftentimes speak volumes about the people involved. Without additional input from talking heads like myself, one can draw conclusions about the motivations, integrity, and realities of the participants. Participants who may not have had a leg up in the world or been privy to the elite of the new world, But nevertheless have a story to tell. You can find these through the work of Will Graves and Leon Harris who took great pains to edit and copy many of the war petitions. Their work can be found on RevWarApps.org. I also want to recognize the work of Paul Heinig, Bobby Moss, and Michael Scoggins in their various books. They have been able to further draw out from these vast records participants separated by battle or in some works by race. The first is Moses Knight. In the petition for, for Moses Knight, we find uh, that it, in the application, list, Moses as an African by birth. In Davies County, Indiana, March 26, 1831, Moses Knight, age 76, that he, the said Moses Knight, enlisted for the term of five years in the year 1779 in the state of South Carolina in the company commanded by Captain James Fauntleroy in the regiment commanded by Colonel Jack McIntosh in the line of the state of South Carolina on the Continental Establishment, that he continued in that service until the year 1782 when he was discharged from the service in Windsor in the state of South Carolina. May 13th, 1833, he comes back and uh, makes an addendum to his statement that he enlisted in the Army of the United States in the year 1779 with Colonel Jack McIntosh Serving in a regiment of the South Carolina line under the following named officers Colonel Jack McIntosh, other field officers not recollected, Captain James Fauntleroy, Lieutenant Merriweather. That at the time of his enlistment, he resided at General Alexander McIntosh's on Big P.D. River, about three miles below Long Bluffs and four miles below Cobbs Ferry in South Carolina that Colonel McIntosh was the commander of a troop of Light Horse and was called a regular officer, and that at the time he, the said Moses Knight, enlisted two other individuals by the names of John O'Neill and James O'Neill, brothers, and one other by the name of McClary, enlisted under said McIntosh, that they were marched to Camden, where they were placed under Captain Fa- Fauntleroy and Lieutenant Merryweather's, and where they joined the army that he continued to serve in said troop of horse under the officer's aforesaid until the year 1782 when he was discharged from the service at Windsor in South Carolina, that during his service he was marched into North Carolina, was at the shallow Ford on the Yadkin, was guarding horses in hearing of the guns at the time of the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, that he was at Princess Anne Courthouse in Virginia, and that he was near Savannah in Georgia. That his service was principally against the Tories, and that he was engaged against the Tories, and rode by the side of one George Storms, at the time the Tories killed Colonel Cobb and burned his house at Cobb's Ferry on P.D. That some time in the year of 1782 he was appointed and commissioned a pressmaster to take a boatload of corn from Cobb's Ferry to Windsor, and that he did press hands and take 800 bushels of corn. From said ferry to Windsor for the support of General Green's light horse, where he received his discharge as aforesaid. That the said Moses Knight further states that in March of 1831 he filed a declaration in order to be placed on the pension list, and that sometime in May following he was informed by the War Department that no officer of that name, alluding to Colonel McIntosh, commanded a South Carolina regiment of the Continental Establishment. There was a colonel of that name in the Continental Army, but it does not appear that the claimant belonged to his regiment. As the terms providing for revolutionary soldiers extend to none of those who served on the Continental Establishment, and as the regiment to which the claimant was attached did not belong to that establishment, a pension cannot be granted. He states positively that Colonel Jack McIntosh, was called a regular officer, and that he understood from Colonel McIntosh himself that he was a regular officer, with full powers to enlist men, and as such he, the St. Moses, did as he was informed and verily believes enlist under, that he does not know whether Colonel McIntosh was a resident of South Carolina or not, but believes he was a resident of Georgia. He also states that he was sometimes called Moses Sharper and sometimes called Moses Macintosh, he having been raised by General Alexander McIntosh, and sometimes Moses Knight, and that if Colonel McIntosh was not a regular officer, he was deceived by him and others, but that he did serve, as above stated, which services he proved by living witnesses in the filing of his former declaration. That said Moses Knight further states, for the satisfaction of the War Department, that during the whole period of his service, he served as a private soldier except the period of his service as a press master, as, as aforesaid said, which he believes could not have been more than 30 or 35 days, that Colonel McIntosh was generally called Jack McIntosh, but that his proper name was John McIntosh. The next petitioner we'll review is uh, a gentleman by the name of Negro Bob. In September 1775, he joined the first company of rangers under Samuel Wise, a captain, and was listed on the payroll as Negro Bob, a drummer. On July 24, 1776, he enlisted as a drummer in the 3rd South Carolina Regiment. He also served as a drummer in Major William Henderson's company of the 6th South Carolina Regiment. In one of our previous episodes, we talked about a gentleman by the name of Ishmael Titus, who was one of Cleveland's devils out of North Carolina who came down to Kings Mountain. But another gentleman was listed as bowman, in Mawson Scoggins' book, African American Patriots in the Southern Campaign to the American Revolution. Bowman was a colored free man who served in a Surrey County, North Carolina militia company commanded by Captain Joel Lewis. Bowman was in the Battle of Kings Mountain, South Carolina on October 7, 1780. One of Captain Lewis's grandsons, H.L. Claiborne, recorded a family tradition that Major Patrick Ferguson, the British commander at Kings Mountain, was killed by a member of my grandfather's company, supposed to have been a colored freeman named Bowman. Bobby Gilmore Moss wrote a roster of the Patriots in the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, and he writes that a gentleman by the name of Jesse Gordon was born October 3, 1755, in King and Queen County, Virginia. He died August 27, 1850, in Jackson County, Illinois, He was married to a Mary Nancy Simpson of Union County, Illinois, on April 2, 1829. While residing in Surry County, North Carolina, Jesse Gordon enlisted during February 1776 under Ensign James Shepard, Lieutenant John Horn, Captain William Shepard, and Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Williams, and was in the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge. During the fall of 1776, he served as an orderly sergeant under a Captain Mosby and Lieutenant Colonel Williams. Thereafter, he moved to Wilkes County, Georgia, and on August 10, 1777, became the first lieutenant under Captain James Hawkins and Colonel John Stewart. Following year, in September 1778, he enlisted under Captain John Ginnell and Colonel John Dooley in a regiment of Georgia troops and was in the siege of Savannah. Next, he volunteered under Colonel Elijah Clark and was in the Battle of Kettle Creek. After the fall of Charleston, he was a prisoner on parole. Clark, who had escaped, returned to the area in September of 1781, and Gordon broke his parole to join Clark. They were successful in driving Colonel Brown from Augusta, but Gordon was captured and was held prisoner until he escaped near the end of February 1782. He was recaptured and held about eight months. After being set free by Colonel Henry Lee, who captured Brown's fort, Gordon returned to Wilkes County and served until the end of the war. After the war, he served one year and six months against the Indians. Gordon was allowed pension on his application executed September 2nd, 1834, while residing in Jackson County, Illinois. His widow was granted a pension under her application executed in 1859 while residing in Jackson County and aged 66. The next petition is by William Aiken. On this third day of November, 1832, personally appeared in open court before martin judge of the court of common pleas for fairfield district in the state of south carolina now sitting at fairfield courthouse william aiken a resident on indian creek about two miles from the town of winsboro in the district of fairfield in the state aforesaid aged 72 years since february last who being first duly sworn according to law doth on his oath make the following declaration in order to obtain the benefit of the Act of Congress passed June 7, 1832. The deponent was born in the Kingdom of Ireland, County of Antrim, about three miles from Bellamina, between the first and twelfth days of February 1760. Deponent's father and family moved from Ireland and landed in Philadelphia in 1775 and settled in Brandywine Creek, about 40 miles above Philadelphia, when his house was burnt by accident, and all record of the family ages, if any, were ex- ever existed, as Deponent supposes. But Deponent is ignorant whether they had been recorded being young at the time, transcribed. Deponent left his father in 1779, and came to South Carolina, Fairfield District, lived with his uncle David Thompson at Jackson Creek, until... February 17, 1781, when he was called into militia duty under Captain John Gray. The opponent does not know nor believes there was any draft, but believes that Captain Gray ordered all men out he could sign that they were fit for duty. The opponent was marched to Major John Pearson's plantation, afterwards General Pearson, on Broad River as a place of rendezvous. Andrew Gray was lieutenant, and also James Kincaid. The company was employed in dispersing and quieting the Tories. The troops performed several excursions through Mobley Settlement in Fairfield District. In one of these, they disturbed a body of Tories. He thinks that a house of one Imes in Mobley Settlement, in which the Tories lost one and killed William Smith and then fled. Deponent was out under Captain Gray in this tour two months, at the end of which time Captain Edward Martin arrived with some men and Deponent was transferred to his company. William Gray was Captain Martin's first lieutenant and William Owens the second lieutenant. Captain Martin sent his company under his first lieutenant into Congaree Fort, a little above the present-day site of Granby, and returned home to collect more men. Lieutenant William Gray, with his company and several other militia companies, lay around the fort until it surrendered. Captain John Turner and Company, Captain John Wynn and Company were there. A company of artillery arrived in the morning before the fort surrendered. Thinks that Colonel Taylor commanded the whole of the militia. The opponent on the morning of the surrender whilst on guard was fired at by a detachment from the fort. The guard were beaten back until met and supported by a company from the main army. After the surrender of the army were marched down the Congaree to Ancrums, where they encamped and lay for some time. The deponent served two months from the time he was transferred to Captain Martin's company until discharged, making his tour of service four months in all. Stayed at home at his uncle David Thompson's, when not in scouting parties until July 1781, when deponent with Captain Edward Martin's company was again ordered out, was marched to the Congaree below Columbia, where the company met with Captain John Wynn, John Turner, and other companies. Other troops were there also, crossed the river and marched towards Orangeburg, and near Orangeburg fell in with a detachment of General Greene's army encamped near them three days was also met with Colonel Henry Hampton and his state troops. The militia and Hampton state troops joined and marched down through the low country was at Dorchester 20 miles above Charleston at the 45 miles house and back and forward through the most of the lower country. The troops were all mounted Major John Pearson was long and Colonel Richard Wynn commanded, the regiment of, of militia. Samuel Smart was adjutant. The deponent was out above, above two months this tour, but was allowed indents for only two months. The deponent was from sometime in February 1781 until the last of October 1781, constantly in the militia duty, in either in the tours particularly mentioned or in scouting parties against the Tories under Captain Martin with the exception of a few days and two days at one time, the same at another, and believes that he was out in militia duty fully eight months in all, all the time, a private. David Hamilton, John Slow, Robert McCrate, were all out with the deponent under Colonel Richard Wynne in the tour to Dorchester, the 45 Miles House, etc. We all live on Jackson's Creek in this district. They can also testify as to the scouting duty. But Deponent knows of no person now living who was with him at the taking of the Congaree Fort. There may be some of them who were present, alive, but Deponent does not now recollect or know of, if any, such. Received no discharge except a verbal one from his captain. It was not usual to obtain a written discharge. Deponent, in November 1781, went to Pennsylvania and returned in June of 1783 with his father and family settled in Fairfield District on Jackson Creek and lived there until about the year 1800 when he moved and settled where he now lives as first above mentioned where he has lived ever since that time. And lastly for this episode, we're going to look at uh, David Bruce's petition. The humble petition of David Bruce of Charlestown printer showeth that your petitioner has resided 24 years in Charleston and during that period has maintained a fair and honest character that he never took up arms against the cause of America or received any post, pension, or commission from the British. On the contrary, that he has been greatly distressed owing to his being an old inhabitant for the above reason. He, at the desire of Colonel Lawrence and General Gadsden, printed at his own expense a large pamphlet in the favor of America called Common Sense, with several other publications, all intended for the good of America, which is well known and had the desired effect. He was employed for almost two years in, the, in printing the Acts of Assembly, Proclamations, and until the fall of Charleston, to which period he, he always conducted himself as a peaceable, quiet citizen and friend to America. After the reduction of the town, he was much censored by the British for being a printer of the pamphlet called Common Sense, and in so far. They never employed him in the way of his business during their stay here on that account. And the only crime that was or can be produced against him was the signing of General Clinton's address for which he was put under the list of confiscation. Five Negroes, which was all he had, were sold by the commissioners and himself sent to jail where he died. This particular episode is a little different than we usually have. I usually try to to get someone, an author or a curator or a historian to To speak with us but uh, if you if you do some research on these rev war apps or some of the publications that uh, moss and heinig and scoggins have delivered to the public over the years i think you'll find a a treasure trove of interesting stories and backgrounds and you kind of it sheds light on the new republic I think you won't be disappointed if as you start doing a deep dive in all of those things. And as always, here at History Man Podcast, we proclaim freedom reign.